My name is Rich Procida. I write about religion and politics and produce a podcast called Bible Study for Progressives. I've been healing the nation by educating people about propaganda and political cults and the threat they pose to democracy. Idolatry and false prophecy have captured the minds of people across this nation. Have we not offered a compelling enough message that they run off to conspiracy theories? We cast ourselves into the hands of unscrupulous actors, foreign agents, and criminal regimes when we uncritically believe the information we consume. It's up to us to bring those seduced by propaganda back into a faith consistent with the tenets, scriptures, and traditions of their religions. This is how people of faith can heal the nation. Welcome to Bible Study for Progressives, a show where moderates, liberals, and leftists of all faiths and ideologies come together to discuss scripture, spirituality, and politics. We engage scripture in its historical context, plumb its depths for wisdom and guidance, and apply its lessons to current events and social issues. Whether you're a liberal evangelical, a New Age spiritualist, a social justice activist, or a postmodern theologian, there's something in this show for you. Come, be energized in spirit and mind to understand the word and what it means to be a spiritual person in today's world. Saturday, May 8, 2021, is the National John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Day of Action. There will be activities conducted simultaneously across the nation to advance voting rights, beginning with a national broadcast in the morning, followed by national and local press conferences, photocades and marches in the afternoon, and both live and virtual celebration and activist villages afterwards. Go to johnlewisdayofaction.org to find events and actions near you. I'm hosting a press conference and vorticade on Saturday, May 8, 2021 at the Whittier Post Office on Michigan Avenue in Whittier, California at 11 a.m. We will meet, line up at the post office, decorate our vehicles, display our banner, have a short press conference, then drive through Whittier to our Celebration Village for a short program and organizing time. I look forward to seeing you there. Now let's return to our discussion about healing the nation and the right to speak for God with episodes 19 and 20 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel with Bert Newton. Bert will read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, and then verses 9 to 13, and discuss how Jesus' healing of a paralytic 
and the calling of Matthew, the disciple, are both social and political ways of granting people the right to speak for God and to rule themselves. four episodes, Jesus has been crossing boundaries in a campaign of healing. The crossings themselves are a kind of healing. We have also seen how the campaign for a new society, aka the kingdom of heaven, creates a more equal social order. First, we saw John the baptizer making a way for common people to attain forgiveness and purity apart from the temple priests. Then we saw Jesus, who was baptized by John, also claiming authority regarding purity when he pronounced the leper clean. Jesus, a mere peasant, claimed the authority of the priests. Now, in this first passage in chapter 9, Jesus will more publicly and dramatically claim priestly authority, this time to release from sin. This healing, boundary-crossing, and democratizing of power and authority do not proceed without encountering resistance. As in most societies, the ruling classes have created laws and institutions to accrue power and wealth to themselves. In chapter 9, Jesus encounters for the first time direct face-to-face opposition from the elites who oppose him in defense of their laws and institutions. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 19 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's read Matthew 9, 1-8. After getting into a boat, he crossed the sea and came to his own town. And just then some people were carrying a paralyzed man, lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Then some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus perceived their thoughts and said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Stand up, take your bed, and go to your home. And he stood up and went to his home. When the crowd saw it, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to human beings. Now, the modern Western Christian reader might be tempted to understand this story as being primarily about Jesus' divinity. Jesus is God, so he has the authority to forgive sins. The scribes don't believe in Jesus' divinity, so they think that he is blaspheming. 
putting himself in the role of God, claiming God's authority when he isn't God. But then we have that last line. When the crowd saw it, they were filled with awe and they gave glory to God, who had given such authority to human beings. Matthew's punchline tells us that the issue is not really about Jesus' divinity, but rather his humanity, that he is a human being, that if he, a human being, can forgive sins, then so can other human beings. That last word of the passage is plural. If Jesus can forgive sins, as he just proved by healing the man, then other ordinary people can forgive sins too. They glorified God, who had given such authority to human beings. What is at issue in this story of healing and forgiveness is the issue of authority. Who has the right to speak for God? In ancient societies, that right or authority was one that the ruling establishments hoarded for themselves, usually through a network of priests and temples. Being able to speak for God or for the gods gave the rulers a highly effective psychological tool for maintaining social control over the people. But Jesus blows a gigantic hole in this web of ruling class dogma and sacerdotal deception. Normally, this paralytic would have to go to the priests and make the proper and fairly expensive sacrifice to have his sins forgiven. No one really knows how it all worked in practice in first century Galilee and Judea, but while people did pray to have their sins forgiven, these prayers had to be followed up at some point and in some way with a sacrifice at the temple, which was about 70 miles away, not an easy distance for a paralytic to travel in antiquity. The whole system of sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, something not limited to Israelite society, by the way, this whole system presented a hardship on the common people. And forgiveness of sins was a matter of purity and impacted a person's social status. So, official forgiveness was something that people needed in order to function day to day and to have good standing in society. As I've said before, forgiveness of sins was a socio-political event, both for nations and for individuals. And in the case of individuals, it was a matter of social and therefore also political standing. If human beings, if regular people, had the power to forgive each other, to declare each other forgiven before God and the community. That was quite a democratizing of authority. Great news for the common peasantry. Speaking of peasants, some scholars believe that the idea that people could forgive each other in this way was a common peasant belief. So Jesus is once again affirming peasant practice rather than introducing a completely new idea. And this affirmation is great news in the narrative of this story. While the immediate challenge in this story is to the authority of the temple in Jerusalem, there are also overtones of challenge to the empire. I mean, going beyond the fact that the temple was a puppet government institution of Rome. 
In the Roman propaganda, Caesar is said to take away sins, and he was, in fact, the high priest of Rome. And Jesus here uses the title Son of Man for the second time in Matthew. As I explained in the last episode, Son of Man, as it is used in Matthew, comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, where it is a collective image for the people of Israel as they overcome empires that have oppressed them. When Jesus applies this title to himself, it serves not only as another way that Matthew communicates to the audience that Jesus embodies his people, but also that he leads them in resistance to the Roman Empire. The scene in Daniel 7 involves a sort of pop-up heavenly courtroom scene. God establishes this courtroom in the clouds and takes dominion or authority from the empires, the beasts, and gives it to the people of Israel. The people of Israel in this scene are symbolized with the image, one like a son of man. God takes authority from the beasts, the empires, and gives it to the Son of Man. Likewise, here in this story in Matthew, Jesus assumes legal authority, authority to forgive sins, authority that the Roman propaganda ascribes to Caesar. In other words, as in Daniel, dominion or authority is taken from the empire and given to the Son of Man. So Jesus usurps the authority of the Jerusalem priests, and maybe even Caesar, to forgive sins. And Matthew makes clear that the people's takeaway is that they now have that authority, the authority to declare each other forgiven, the authority to declare each other to be in good sociopolitical standing in society. Jesus will extend this good standing to one of the most despised groups in that society. In the last episode, we saw Jesus act more boldly in claiming the authority of the priests than he had before. He proclaimed a man forgiven of his sins, and by doing so, demonstrated that a common person has that power, the power to declare another person forgiven and in good social standing. In this episode, Jesus will reach out to one of the most despised and socially outcast groups of people, tax collectors, chiefs among sinners. When challenged with the accusation that he is keeping company with despicable people, with shameless sinners, he will counter with a prophetic critique of the whole sacrificial system that upholds priestly and upper-class power and reinforces social division among the people. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Episode 20 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.
Let's begin with just the first verse, Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, some readers might imagine that Matthew is a wealthy, if despised, individual since he is a tax collector. We might think of the famous tax collector Zacchaeus in the Gospel of Luke, who does in fact seem to be a fairly wealthy man. But Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. Matthew in this story, not to be confused with the author of this Gospel, Matthew in this story is likely just the employee of a chief tax collector, like Zacchaeus. Or more accurately, he is the employee of a chief toll collector. Matthew sits in a booth on the side of the road, collecting tolls for his boss. His boss is the one who has the contract with the Romans, a contract to collect tolls from people who use the Roman roads. Matthew is likely just a peasant with a low-wage, steady job. Jesus calls Matthew to come and join the movement, and Matthew immediately leaves his steady, somewhat secure job and joins this ragtag band of homeless radicals. His calling by Jesus to come and join the movement sounds a lot like the calling of the first disciples in chapter 4, who immediately left their fishing jobs to follow Jesus, which, as I covered in episode 8 of this series, would have reminded the original audience of the call of Elisha by Elijah. Elijah calls Elisha from his farming job, and Elisha immediately follows. So just like Elisha, the first disciples in chapter 4, and now Matthew, immediately leave their jobs to follow a prophet. Elijah and Elisha were both prophets whose vocation was to be a thorn in the side of the rulers. By using this Elijah and Elisha imagery, Matthew tells us that we should understand that a great prophet is calling his disciples, who are also going to be prophets, and they will be a thorn in the side of the rulers. Jesus' movement is that kind of a prophetic movement. Well, sort of. Actually, this movement is even more radical than Elijah and Elisha. As I explained in episode 8, the disciples that Jesus calls in chapter 4 don't just have fishing jobs. They effectively work for the empire. You see, Caesar claimed ownership of all the fish in his imperial realm. Fishermen did not merely have to catch the fish. They then had to buy them from the emperor before they could sell or eat them. Their daily work enriched the emperor. When Jesus calls these fishermen away from their jobs, he calls them away from working for the empire. He liberates them. The call is a dramatic story of liberation. The same goes for the disciple Matthew, again, not to be confused with the author of this gospel. Matthew in this story works for the empire too, only he is more socially despised because he collects tolls, a form of tax for the Romans. Both the fisherman and the toll collector are doing what they have to do to survive. And Jesus calls both of them 
to abandon their service to the empire and instead answer a call to prophetic resistance against the ruling class of the empire. The story continues with verses 10 to 13. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. In the last episode, we saw that Jesus demonstrated that the common people have the power to forgive sin, the power to declare each other to be in good social or social political standing. Now, after calling a tax or toll collector to join his band of homeless revolutionaries, Jesus sits down to dinner with even more toll collectors and other assorted sinners. Sitting down to dinner in this manner signals mutual redemption and reconciliation, a way of declaring each other to be of equal social standing. You see, who you ate with and how you ate with them was a big deal in the first century Mediterranean world. New Testament scholar Warren Carter puts it this way, Meal customs reflected and reinforced hierarchical order, social relations, and status through invitations, different qualities and quantities of food, types of tableware and eating utensils, and seating order. Carter also states that certain social radicals defied these conventions by including slaves and women of varying social rank in meals. And then Carter concludes by saying, Jesus' actions belong with this countercultural trend. So Jesus' behavior is not completely unprecedented, but it is countercultural and signals equality among everyone at the meal. And given that he is calling people away from working for the empire, it is revolutionary. Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners constitutes a quintessential image of what this gospel is about. It is an image of social healing and reconciliation through an egalitarian meal. People who have lived in shame for resorting to collecting taxes for the hated Roman occupiers in order to survive are being reconciled. They are treated honorably by Jesus and his disciples. They share a meal as honorable equals. They are healed, and they are liberated. This is an image also of Jesus doing the opposite of what conventional wisdom would dictate. He's trying to build a movement with all the wrong people. And you can feel the delicious drip of irony in the gospel writer's use of the word sinners. Wasn't Jesus just the other day saying, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law. Whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus said that his movement would uphold the law and hold lawbreakers in low regard. In fact, they wouldn't even be able to enter the new society. And yet here he is, eating with tax or toll collectors and sinners, the unclean, the traitors, the outlaws. And the Pharisees are calling him out on it. But that's the thing. Jesus is aiming for a higher righteousness, a higher justice than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he draws not only on the law, but on the prophets too. He quotes the prophet Hosea telling them, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. With this quote, Jesus again attacks the temple and its sacrificial system, a system that lays a heavy burden on the people and demands adherence to the law at the expense of human beings. Modern parallels should jump out at us. The denial of humane treatment to people escaping poverty and violence on the basis that they have broken a law by crossing a border. Or a system that will crush families financially because they can't meet their medical debt obligations. Any system that will sacrifice people on the altar of the law. To the defenders of all these systems, Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He sarcastically tells the Pharisees, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I have come to call not the just, but sinners. Jesus' campaign is a campaign of healing and forgiveness. To establish a new society where people have the power and authority to forgive and heal each other. Those who are well, or rather those who perceive themselves to be well, have no need of this new society. Most of them will not join the movement. But as we will see, they are the ones who need healing the most. In the next episode, Jesus will be confronted, not by establishment figures like these Pharisees, but by fellow radicals who question what he is doing. And he will have to explain to them why this is the time to party with the sinners. My name is Bert Newton. The theme music for this podcast is provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. And this has been Episode 20 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. This has been Bible Study for Progressives. If you enjoyed the program, please subscribe to our podcast or put us in your favorites and write a five-star review. Tell your friends about us and share us on social media. Follow us on Facebook and click the donate button at modernlectionaries.blogspot.com. Your support will help us reach more people, produce more and better shows, and cover the cost of production. Feel free to send me a note or comment on the show. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Rich Proceda. Thank you for listening.